0: matthew 15:10 through 20. jesus called the crowd to him and said listen and understand what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them but what comes out of their mouth that is what defiles them then the disciples came to him and asked do you know that the pharisees were offended when they heard this he replied every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots leave them They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them.
1: Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. <laughs> it's a real quiet welcomes back. I appreciate it. It's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, thanks for braving the snow and making your way here. Hope your holidays were... Fun? Restful, maybe? Not too stressful, if that's all we're going to hope for. Uh, today, we are beginning a brand new series entitled Heart. And over the next six weeks or so, we're going to be exploring practices that form in us a heart of God-shaped love. You can see this kind of conversation happening in the words of Jesus from the text this morning talking about what is in a person. The Hebrews and the scripture writers often talk about the heart as the very center of a human being, the very center of a person. They knew that it was an organ that like pumped blood, but they also saw it as like the locus of a person's identity. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about practices that form in us love. Practices that shape us, that deepen us, that ground us, that grow us, that participate in our transformation. And if you've been with us for a while, we often start the new year with a practice-oriented kind of conversation. Last year, we began the year with the Sermon on the Mount, looking at the way of Jesus and the practices that Jesus gives to his community. And then the year before that, we looked at a series called Spark, which then began a series of podcasts that Heather does all around practicing the way of Jesus, And we really like to do this just to begin the year with a practice conversation as a way of grounding us in the year, as a way of rooting us in the year. And it's almost like a counter to resolutions. Not that resolutions are bad necessarily, but uh, rhythms and practices is a kind of a different way of thinking about growth and health and transformation and what grounds us. And Heather and I planned this conversation a handful of months ago, kind of near the end of last year. But as we've been entering the 2024 and just praying through it and thinking through it, the series has taken on maybe like a different dimension of weight to me. And, and this is for two reasons. The first, the reason this series has taken on a new dimension of weightiness or importance to me is that I think one of the primary criticisms of Christianity in America today is that we don't look much like Jesus We have a presidential election happening this year, 2024, and if you've been around presidential elections in America before, you know that it tends to bring out the very worst of the Christian community. And I think as you watch this, or if you have participated in this, and if you've seen the kind of disunity or divide or hate that can spew from this, I think just the natural question is to be like, what is happening in the midst of us? Why do we not look much like Jesus? Why do we not well? Why do we not love self Self sacrificially? Why do we not put others' needs before our own? Why are we caught up in the same kind of atmosphere and culture around us? Why are we not distinct? Something about the Christian community is supposed to be distinct, like we know that, and yet we often don't look very distinct. We don't look or love like Jesus very much. And I don't think this series will solve that problem in and of itself. But I do want to begin the year with us asking that question of ourselves. How do we live in a world that will become even more increasingly polarized over the next year like Jesus? How do we love like Jesus? How do we offer peace to anxiety like Jesus? So that's the first reason I think that it feels weighty to me. The second reason, though, is more personal, and it kind of like started to foment in me during the holidays. I had a really good holiday, a lot of fun with my family. A lot of fun with friends. We had friends stay with us for 10 days, Uh, but I do have a two-bedroom, one-bath house, so you you know, that's a lot. And something was revealed to me in that process that I did not love all that much to be revealed, which is uh, I did not like how quickly I became annoyed at people I love very deeply. (laughs) I don't know if anybody else had that same feeling. You don't have to tell me. But I did not love how quickly I became frustrated or annoyed or how fast I felt like I ran out of patience or maybe the worst of all, how fast I felt like I reverted to like 14-year-old Johnny when I was with my family. And I was like, I am an adult man. Why am I behaving this way? There's something about those stressful, strenuous, taxing situations that have a way of doing that, triggering something in us and revealing something in us that as I just looked at myself, I was like, I don't love how little I was able to love in this season. I don't love how much it felt like my ability to love was taxed and how it felt like it ran out a lot faster than I wanted it to. And in some ways, how I did not feel free even to love the way that I wanted to. I think both those questions, the question about who we are in the world around us and the question I'm asking about my own self, those are both sort of character questions. What is the character of a person? Or their formation questions. How do we form ourselves? How do we grow? How do we become more Jesus-like? How do we learn to love more? How does our capacity to love grow more? How does our capacity to receive love grow more? Thankfully, the people of faith have been wrestling with this question for thousands of years. We're not new to this conversation. My own frustration is not new to this conversation. And oftentimes, the answer to how do we grow more, how do we form in us hearts of love, is referred to as the process of spiritual formation. Some other traditions might call it discipleship, and all that is good language, but spiritual formation is often the language used to describe uh, the maturation of our own heart, the transformation that happens within us. Dallas Willard, who's a kind of famous Formation writer defines spiritual formation this way. He says, Spiritual formation in the tradition of Jesus is the process of the transforming the inmost dimension of the human being, the heart. It is being formed in such a way that its natural expression comes to be the deeds of Christ done in the power of Christ with agape or love as the very center or linchpin of it all. Spiritual formation in this definition is the process of being transformed in the very deepest parts of ourselves. And Willard will go on to talk about how there is parts of that process that are passive. We are receptions of what God does in us and through us, but there is a part of that work that is active, something we are called and invited to do. If you ever read Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit passage, there's all this beautiful language about what God does in us, and then also this consistent language about following the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, or keeping in step with the Spirit. And throughout this series, Heart, we're going to look at that active work. What is it that we are called to do? What are some of the practices of the Christian life that can help form in us hearts of God-shaped, God-oriented love. These are practices that we see in the life of Jesus, that we see in the story of the Bible, and that Christians have been practicing for 2,000 years that have had a transformative effect on people's lives. But before we do that, before we look at those practices individually, today what I want to do is maybe wrestle with a bigger, broader question, especially if maybe you come in here and you don't come from a tradition with spiritual formation as a priority. Like, and here's the broader question, which is what does spiritual practices do in our life? Maybe spiritual disciplines or spiritual formation or that language doesn't have a lot of resonance with you or maybe it's even a little bit frustrating to you or maybe you come from a tradition where you felt like you tried these things and they did not help you or did not work. And so I want to step back a second and say what do these practices What are they intended for in our life? And in some ways, we're touching on a bigger conversation, which is like, how do Christians grow and change? How do we mature? How do we heal? I think it's important to start here because conversation about spiritual practices, sometimes referred to as spiritual disciplines, can often become conversations about behavioral modifications how much control we have or how much willpower we have to suppress something or repress something or get control over our impulses or our body. Sometimes this conversation can become all about spiritual practices becoming tools of repressing something within us. I think all of us have had moments in our lives where you like look inside, like I did at Christmas, and you see something that you're like, I don't love that. And so sometimes spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices become the tools that we go to to address that thing we don't love and to repress it or to starve it or to hammer it out of us as though if we could get enough control or if we could get enough power over it, we could overcome the things in our lives that we don't love. We could just add some discipline to our life. We do this a lot in New Year's generally. Some people in here are probably doing a dry January. Maybe you started a diet. Maybe you killed your Netflix subscription because you don't like how much TV you watched. You add some discipline to your life to try to repress something, to try to shape something within you. And there's moments and times where that's helpful and necessary, especially around destructive behaviors. But the problem is, repression rarely leads to long-term change within us. Repression rarely heals things within us. Repression rarely changes desires. One of my favorite examples of this is uh, in the 1800s, a group of Christians, mostly women, began what is often referred to as the temperance movement. And it was women who had experienced firsthand the dangers and problems of alcohol. I was doing some research on this era, and they say that the average man 15 years and above was drinking 88 bottles of whiskey a year. That is a lot of whiskey. I like a glass of whiskey. That's a lot of whiskey. <laughs> so you're experiencing firsthand the destructive power of alcohol in their life. And so, what do they do? Well, they begin a movement referred to as prohibition to legislate and lobby for the control of alcohol. Question: Did people stop drinking alcohol during prohibition? They did not. <laughs> did not. Al Capone. You know, like you have these. Moments in time where we understand that repression, control, legislation, though maybe effective in short term moments, lacks the power to change us long term. I think the same thing can often happen with spiritual disciplines. And maybe in the best case scenario, when spiritual disciplines look like this, when spiritual practices play this role in our life, I think the, the, maybe the best case scenario is that we try them, they are beneficial. We fail at continuing to do them, feel a little guilty, and then maybe try again. And that's actually not a terrible rhythm to live in. Or maybe we feel guilty and then we stop trying them all together. That's one thing that can happen. Probably many of us in here have had that experience. But something else can happen when we look at spiritual practices as tools of repression something more painful. I think we can injure ourselves. Good things can be destructive. So, if you go to the gym and you do too much weight or you run on a torn ligament, what was already hurt can get more wounded. You put too much weight on an existing wound and you can wound it even further. Shame can compound, isolation can increase, jealousy can twist into resentment. In an attempt to grow stronger or to overcome or to get control of our lives, we can put too much weight on ourselves, too much weight on an existing wound and actually cause more pain. So instead of healing desires or transforming our loves, we actually get more wounded. So spiritual practices are not tools of repression. If they can't be that for us, if that doesn't lead to lasting change, then what is the purpose of spiritual practices? I like this quote a lot from theologian G.K. Chesterton. He says this, I think, really well. He says, The more I consider Christianity, the more I found that while it has established a rule and an order, a way of life, a set of practices, a set of rhythms for our existence. The chief end of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. The purpose of spiritual formation and of practicing the way of Jesus is not repression, but is instead that goodness would grow wild. It is that goodness would thrive and flourish. The ancient church father Augustine talked about practicing the way of Jesus like tending to a garden. There's rhythms and there is disciplines and there is practices in caring for a garden. But the purpose of those practices and those rhythms and even those disciplines is that life in that space would thrive, that it would flourish. Tending is about letting love have more room to grow not less. The Apostle Peter uses kind of similar language in one of the most famous passages about spiritual formation. This is in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing to a small church, instructing them in the way of Jesus and the practices of Jesus. And he says this very beautiful thing. He says, by his divine power, the Lord has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, through the knowledge of the one who has called us by his own honor and glory. Through his honor and his glory, he has given us this precious and wonderful promise that you may share the divine nature and escape from the world's immorality that sinful craving produces. Because, like You've been given everything you need to participate in divine nature. What is the divine nature? Well the writer of uh, first John would tell us it is love. Everything that we need to participate in love, to grow and thrive and flourish in the reality of love. you That is what I want for my 2024. To grow in the divine nature, to share in my participation in Love, fellowship with God, fellowship with one another, and an extension of that goodness to the world around me. So that's what spiritual practices are for. Participation in the divine nature, growing in our capacity of goodness and of love. But that returns us to our very original question, which is how do they work? What do they do in us? What's the function of them in our life? How do they help us grow in love or share in God's nature? And there's probably a lot of good answers to the question, honestly. But for the sake of our conversation today and going forward, here's what I think is going to be the primary answer. Is that spiritual practices help us see, receive, and grow aware of the love of God? Jared Patrick Boyd, who wrote a really marvelous book on spiritual practices last year, it says the primary focus of spiritual formation is learning the love of God for us. The primary focus of spiritual formation is learning the love of God for us. I think another way of saying this is it is the cultivation of humility. The spiritual practices are about cultivating in us humility. Let me give you an example. One of the ancient, longest standing Christian practices is the practice of Sabbath or rest. We love to begin the year talking about rest. Because again, it feels kind of like contrarian to other emphasis in the new year. But rest is about deliberately choosing to let go of control. If you're an ancient Israelite and you've been given a command of sabbatical to Sabbath, to rest on the seventh day, it is to take control out of your own hands and trust that God will provide for you, not just as an individual, not just as a family, but as a nation. It is to risk your borders and your money and your land in trust that God provides. And even in our own lives, rest is about deliberately choosing to let go of control. It is about choosing to to acknowledge and live into our own limits, not overcome them. And instead of trying to force our way over our limits, rest is about choosing to trust and submit ourselves to the care and the provision of God in our human limitations. That's what makes rest so difficult, I think, in our modern world. I think for me, at least, I use work as a coping mechanism for my own anxiety. If I feel anxiety growing up within me, the thing I do, the thing I go to the fastest, is like a list of things that I can accomplish. And if I can just check all the things off the list, then I'll deal with my anxiety so that I can get to rest. But if you have this habit, you know, work does not satiate anxiety. If anything, it represses it for a time compounds the anxiety so that at a later date it rears its ugly head far more ferocious than it was before. The only true thing that speaks to anxiety is rest. Because it is not about control or repression or getting willpower over anxiety. Instead, it is about open-handedly trusting that God provides for us in our anxiety. Rest is a deliberate rhythm of choosing to humble ourselves, acknowledge our limitations, and allow God to meet us. And the same thing is true of so many of the ancient Christian practices. Whether its silence and solitude is the recognition that noise occupies our mind, and so we go to silence and solitude to create space to hear from God and to be met by God. Generosity is the recognition that our wealth holds a lot of our heart. And so we are going to deliberately create space for God to take hold of our heart. Fasting, that's a practice I don't love talking about. And I think the reason is because I'm a real comfort eater. (laughs) And so when I feel stressed besides work, I get a cheeseburger. Everybody calls me a trash panda, but what I'm doing is hiding something inside. (laughs) Those corn dogs are a cry for help, and all you've done is make fun of me. But fasting is a deliberate choice to say, I have limitations, and I cope with food, and so I'm going to deliberately choose to acknowledge my limitations so that God can meet me in my coping mechanism, provide space for healing and presence that I might receive the love of God. This is how spiritual formation in the way of Jesus is so different than self-improvement campaigns that are rooted in behavioral modification. Self-improvement is about control. And the question that we're always asking is, did we fail or did we succeed? And again, there's places and times in our life for that, but it is different than spiritual formation because spiritual formation is about trust. And it is not measured in failure or Success, but about learning to love. Actually, the real gift of spiritual formation is that if it is measured in learning to love, there is no failures. I didn't wake up and I didn't pray. That's actually an opportunity for me to again receive grace and the love and the goodness of God. Spiritual formation is about learning to trust, learning to receive the goodness and the love of God for us. It is about acknowledging our limits, it is about setting boundaries, and it is about creating space to be met and transformed by the love of God. Over the next five weeks, we'll look at individual practices. Practices like simplicity, practices like silence and solitude, practices like communal discernment, that'll be the end of it. But before we go there, I wanted to create just a bit of time as we're having this framework conversation about what this is, what it's for, what it's doing in us. I wanted to create a bit of time to just ask us some reflective questions in light of this. These are questions I hope you'll wrestle through the rest of this conversation. If nothing else, you'll wrestle through today. But maybe even more importantly, questions that you'd be willing to wrestle through this year. And here they are, there's three of them that I want to propose to us. The first one is this, where do you need the love of God in 2024? Spiritual formation is primarily about receiving the love of God. Where in your life are you beginning to recognize a need for God's love? For healing, for restoration, for rebuilding trust, maybe even between you and God? courage to take a risk towards somebody, where are you beginning to recognize that you need the love of God? Something i am been praying through a lot, the uh, like kind of end of last year and beginning of this year, is that I really want, from my own heart, 2024 to be a year of of taking some risks in faith. And so part of the question I'm wrestling with when I say, where do you need the love of God, is like, where do I need courage from God to take those risks? So maybe that's it for you. Where do you need the love of God? Maybe you had an encounter with family this holiday season, you're like, I love that. That can be the moment. Question number two, how can you create space to hear and receive the love of God in 2024? We'll talk through specific practices going forward, but my mentor, a guy named David Fitch, always says, the practices aren't really the point, practicing is. Creating space of presence is the purpose of the practices. And so how can you create space to hear and receive the love of God? For me, in some ways, this is a a way of re-looking at my spiritual practices. Less about my own knowledge, less about control, less about self-improvement, and more about moments to receive and hear from and encounter the goodness of God. And so, how can you create space to hear and receive? Maybe that's rethinking some of the practices you already have in your life. Maybe it's creating moments in your day. And then here's the final question. Do you trust God to meet you in love this year? I just want to tell you, it's okay if the answer to that question is a bit shaky? And if it is a bit shaky, that actually might be revealing in some way the answer to question one. Maybe it's hard to believe that God will meet you in love this year. And so when we go back to question one, where do you need the love of God? It's in rebuilding trust, developing faith, knowing that God is for you and with you. Maybe you need God to meet you in small, early ways to develop this sense of connection and trust so that you can risk even more. So, do you trust God to meet you in love this year? Because I want you want to take these three questions and bring them to this table as we gather to worship here? We gather at the table every single week as an answer to these questions, to remind ourselves that God does meet us in love again. And again and God wants to heal the images of God that we hold in our heart that deny that. God wants to give us the courage to risk again and again. God wants to heal those places of desire in our heart that sometimes move away from Him. And so as we worship together, Missy, would you bring these three questions to this table where God meets you in goodness and love as a reminder that God always meets you in goodness. And and in love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you meet us. That you walk with us wherever it is that we go at the speed we go. That you are unhurried. But I pray for Messia that we would have some encounters with you and the goodness of you that could heal, that could deepen, that could ground us, and it could produce in us a willingness to take risks towards you, risk towards others, risk towards ourselves. That would empower us to love like you do. Out of the depth of you, the goodness of you, would we extend it to the people around us? Jesus, we pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.